things of God. Now, here is your host, End Time Watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello, listeners around the globe and all the folks on WWCR tuning in. I'm your host, Sheila Zielinski, and we are so glad you tuned in for today. My guest, you all know him from the Albarino Analysis from SteveQuell.com. His website and channel, Genesis 6 Giants, are also linked there at WeekendVigilante.com. He's an incredible, brilliant man, and it's my pleasure to have him back on the program. Timothy Alberino, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on with you. One of the interesting things you talk about, Timothy, is how the Aztecs and Inca had in their possession peculiar, as you call it, knowledge that they could not have possibly attained on their own, such as extremely highly complex cosmological data things like um, interesting sort of pharmacology, metallurgy, meteorology. Get into that a little bit for people. Well, a lot of people are familiar with the fact that the Maya, particularly the Maya, the Aztec, and the Inca uh, were indeed in possession of peculiar knowledge uh, that they could not have attained on their own, such as incredibly accurate cosmological models, projections of the solar system in some cases, the famous Mayan calendar and then the Aztec calendar, were able to predict with incredible precision the different aspects of the solar calendar. So these are, in many cases, technologies we can call them. This is knowledge that it really takes sophisticated means to attain, such as what we have today. We need high-powered computers to map the same kind of projections that the so-called primitive societies were mapping back during the height of their civilizations. And that's primarily when you talk about the civilizations of the Americas in terms of technology, the the most astounding technology is probably their calculations, their calendars, and their calculations about the cosmos. Well, they certainly had very complex models, didn't they? Yeah, they also had very complex societies. And one of the points that I make in the Land of the Plume Serpent series, which we're up to number three now, the last one I did was number three, There's one more to come, but one of the major points that I make is that these three civilizations, particular, there were other civilizations, but these these were the three dominant civilizations 
of Central and South America. Again, the, the Maya, the Aztec, and the Inca, all three of these civilizations were very analogous in many ways. Their cultures were very similar. And all three of them practiced at some point in time a very savage form of paganism. Um, and they worshipped their gods, particularly the, the plume serpent and the sun god, that required copious amounts of blood. And there's a misconception out there. I believe it's a misconception. There's an attempt, especially in the New Age circles, to depict the plumed serpent deities, the Kukukan to the Mayans, uh, Quetzalcoatl to the Aztec, and Veracosha and Amaru to the Inca. There's, again, there's this attempt to depict these guys as being wonderful, benevolent beings who came and founded a very advanced benevolent civilization on, uh, in South and Central America. But in reality, we know that all three of those civilizations were steeped in savage paganism. And what many people will say is that these, these godmen, these, these plume serpent godmen, they taught the, their civilizations, which they are credited actually with founding, they taught their civilizations to, basically they taught them the, the Ten Commandments, to love one another, to respect one another, to have a, a civilized form of society, and that the societies descended into this bloody paganism because they stopped following the teachings of Kukukan, Quetzalcoatl, and Veracosha, when I believe that is a rank fallacy. I think that the natural progression of the cultures that was founded by these entities, the natural progression was to descend in that kind of, into that kind of paganism. And that has very big implications for the United States because the United States is the new land of the plumed serpent. That's what the word America literally means, is land of the plumed serpent. We get it. It's a derivation of the word amaduka, which is an Incan word, which literally means land of the plumed or feathered serpent. Well, you're right. It seems these plume serpent deities are always a theme that are interwoven through even ancient depictions all over the world. You see dragon and serpent kinds of depictions. And you're right. I mean, when you go back to these civilizations, there is a real bloody system of paganism, deeply entrenched paganism, worshipping of the sun typically. But again, these plume serpent deities are interwoven through these ancient civilizations. Do you find that interesting? Absolutely. The occult world has known that the worship of the sun and of the dragon was, and I would say is to this day, but it's, but it's underground, was the most prevalent form of paganism that existed on the earth was primarily the worship of the sun but the sun represents enlightenment obviously in a physical sense because the sun the literal sun enlightens the world enlightens the literal earth and uh, obviously that's why we can see during the day and that's where our crops grow and that's why the the weather on this planet works and all these other uh, all these other mechanisms because of the enlightenment of the sun well esoterically the sun brings enlightenment to mankind. It brings spiritual enlightenment to mankind. In fact, the sun represents enlightenment. And to the occult world, the dragon, the serpent, is the keeper and the giver of that enlightenment. So, in other words, 
we can consider the sun in occultic terms. We can consider the sun as enlightenment and then enlightenment and apotheosis. And apotheosis means, of course, to, to apotheosize is to become a god, to become godlike. So apotheosis is the act of becoming like God or like the gods, which is, of course, the Luciferian lie. That's the lie that was used to beguile um, Eve in the Garden of Eden. And, and, and so the devil claims to be, and is to some degree, the keeper of that knowledge from the tree of knowledge of, of good and evil. And he directs humanity on the path of enlightenment. And by the way, Sheila, something that not many people really recognize, but it's important that we, that we understand all of this in the proper context, is that the enlightenment of Satan works to a degree depending on what we're talking about. If we're talking about technology, if we're talking about civilization, if we're talking about raw knowledge of the universe and of nature, Satan's enlightenment is profitable for those things. But of course, we all know that the fruit of the tree of knowledge and of good and evil is not profitable for the children of God, for those who would walk with God. That, that was forbidden for them to eat of that tree. And so, as a result, yes, we have technology, we have knowledge of good and evil, but at the same time, we have the human condition. What's the human condition? It's sin and death. And so that's what the enlightenment of Lucifer will always breed, sin and death. Even if the goal, uh, such as uh, was the goal for America when it was founded, was to build a civilization, a high Atlantean civilization, that would advance in science and that would advance in, in all kinds of technology and that would basically bring about the betterment of mankind. The problem is that the seeds of so much of that knowledge that causes a civilization to rise to that degree of technology and understanding, those seeds are always wicked. Those seeds are always sown with wickedness and they always will produce the same Fruit. Those civilizations, and in every single case, those civilizations descend into chaos and death and bloodlust and rank moral depravity. And really, that is the forecast for the United States of America. Well, and it's so interesting that the transhumanism, you have that same theme interwoven into that, the promise of eternal life, the promise of you will be as gods. And Genesis 6, I think this is important for people to understand, it really does depict a race of hybrid giants, which were created between fallen angels and females. Also, there was animals at the time. I guess you would sense there was some kind of offspring that would have some extrasensory faculties, forbidden intelligence, that kind of thing. And again, this is probably interwoven into the fact that even there was technology that could have been ascertained to even escape the Great Flood, perhaps, because the purpose of the Flood was to destroy what was on Earth. What about entities, as you've alluded to, Tim, that could have had some kind of complex, advanced level of technology to escape the Great Flood? Sure, we have to think about, let me start off by saying this, we're typically taught to think about Noah and the pre-Flood world in a very... Um, let's just call it a very immature way. We're not really taught to examine it logically because if you begin to examine the days of Noah logically, you find some astounding things. If you look at the days of Noah, you know, and all of us have seen the, the, uh, the banal imagery of, you know, in Sunday schools 
were painted on the wall is the big ark with the big happy elephant sticking out and the, and the giraffe and Noah, big smile on his face. We don't think about the technological advancement that would have existed in the antediluvian world during the, the reign of the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, that were reprobate, that were fallen, that were made themselves the enemies of God and of God's creation, but they were allowed to exist and to participate in all the shenanigans that they were doing for at least a thousand years. If you calculate it, if you reckon the time according to the Septuagint, if you take a look at what the activity of these fallen angels, they're called watchers in some extra biblical documents. Actually, the Bible uses the term watcher too. Daniel says that he saw a watcher. And so he was identifying a character. He was identifying a being that the Hebrews were familiar with when he said watcher. And so these watchers are superhuman entities. They're not human at all. They're akin to angels. They're probably a, a, an order of angels. Of course, angel is a very broad term. So these are some kind of entities, angelic entities, whose job, according to the extra-biblical text, was to watch over the affairs of men. That's why they were called watchers. They were watching. And that's why you can imagine that that's why they basically began to lust after the women. I mean, that, their job was to watch the affairs of men. They were constantly watching the children of men, watching what was unfolding on the earth. And throughout the Bible, we have evidence that the angels are on assignment, many of them, depending on what their order and kind is, that they're here on the earth keeping an eye on things. And when something happens, what do they do? They go up and they give report to God. That's evident in the Bible and also, also many extra-biblical texts, many apocryphal works, that the angels will go and they'll give a report to God, and then God will then respond. Sometimes he'll respond in a very dynamic way, such as when the Tower of Babel was being built, and God himself, and presumably his son, because he refers to himself in the plural form, comes down to see what they were doing. So we have these fallen angels, these watchers, who are supremely intelligent, Remember that the book of Job talks about that these, the sons of God, the Benai Elohim, shouted for joy when the earth was created. That means they were there before the earth existed. They watched God specifically. They watched the Son of God, Jesus, create the world, including Satan watched Jesus create the universe. I mean, imagine that. We can't. We simply can't. But they can. These fallen angels and the angels in general, they were there in terms of created order. They know physics. They know me the mechanics of the way that the universe works. They know the hidden secrets about the distant corners of the universe, these heavenly beings. So these are entities with superior intellect. And that superior intellect translates into very tangible sciences, obviously into physics, into chemistry, into mathematics. It, that's what it translates into. These angels weren't just in possession of esoteric knowledge. It doesn't mean anything to us. They were in possession of the knowledge that became the root for the technology that we're using right now, talking on this broadcast. According to the Book of Enoch, th those fallen angels were responsible, in broad terms, they were responsible for sorcery, astrology, astronomy, pharmacy, metallurgy, the extracting and working with the different metals of the earth, meteorology, obviously the study of the weather patterns and, and, and geology. And I find it interesting that they taught astrology, astronomy, meteorology, and geology also, well, all of it put together because when you put all those sciences together, you have the sciences necessary to create, to build advanced flying machines. In fact, you could have the sciences to build interplanetary flying machines.
How do we know that? Because we have. We've done it. We who are living in the 21st century, actually those who are living in the 20th century, were able to create machines and technologies that could break through the, the atmosphere of the earth and into outer space. Like I say in the analysis, we went from riding in horse-drawn carriages to riding in rovers in, on the moon and building International Space Station in orbit around the Earth. So that's us. That's the human race. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because everybody needs to consider now reprobate entities of the order of angels, of some kind of angels, specifically the watchers. So reprobate watchers, reprobate angels, with all the knowledge that they have coming down to the Earth in direct insubordination against God. This was not a good thing. They took an oath together. They descended down onto Mount Hermon. So they were all in this together. They knew exactly what they were going to do. And then they began to set about the work that they had bound themselves together to do. And what was that? First, they took wives from among the children of men. They lusted after women. That's a hard pill for people to swallow. But that's what Genesis 6 says, and that's what the other records say. So they lusted after women, they took wives, but they didn't stop there because it wasn't just carnality. It wasn't just lust that was driving them. There were a couple of other things driving them. They desired, it says in the book of Enoch, to have children, to create offspring. They had this desire. They obviously were watching the children of men, that they would have children, they would procreate. They wanted to create offspring, and that's what they did. They took these wives, they had intercourse with them, and they created their own hybrid offspring. And the result was, of course, giants, but not giants of the order of the post-flood world, giants that were in some cases 40 feet tall or, or 40 foot plus. That comes from different records. So they, they were big. They weren't just 12 feet tall or 15, even though that's really big. These guys were 27, 40, 50, perhaps even 100 feet tall. These guys, the fallen angels, the watchers, they didn't just stop at rebelling against God, taking wives, having intercourse with them, creating their own offspring. They didn't just stop there. They continued. What they did after that was they portioned off the earth. They divided the earth into portions amongst themselves. There were 200 of them. They became the god of their own realms, literally, just like the Greek gods and all that. That's where it came from. They became, that stuff is based on fact. They became the gods of their own realms, and they appointed their children, their human hybrid children, as the rulers of the earth. Of their, of their different realms. And they didn't stop there. They went on to then have intercourse. The book of Giants says that they chose 200, maybe more because it's fragmented, at least 200 different species of animals to copulate with. And the book of Giants begins to list them. The book of Giants is an ancient scroll found among the Dead Sea Scrolls that correlates with the book of Enoch and the book of Genesis. They chose 200 different animals to copulate with, with the specific intent to generate new forms of hybrids. And the book of Giants begins to list donkeys and, and horses or cows and all kinds of different stuff, but it doesn't list all of them because it's fragmented and we don't have the fragments don't allow us to view all 200 species that they chose. Obviously, angels copulating with bulls, you know, that would uh, explain minotaurs and things like that in, in, in the ancient world. Then they began to teach their offspring, definitely their human hybrid offspring, the giants, possibly also their 
animal hybrid offspring, they began to teach them technology, the very sciences that I just listed. They began to teach their children the forbidden secrets. They weren't supposed to do this. I mean, they were spitting in God's face. They began to teach all these sciences to their children and also to their wives, who became, according to the Book of Enoch, were sorceresses. So they had both esoteric technologies, which we call witchcraft, and they had exoteric technologies, which we call science. Now, here's the big thing for everybody listening to put this into perspective. All of this was going on for at least 1,000 years, okay? 1,000 years. Again, I said within 100 years because of the Industrial Revolution, we went from riding horse-drawn carriages to riding rovers on the moon without the presence of fallen angels teaching us and without being superhuman giant hybrids with superhuman cerebral capabilities and, and supernatural capabilities, without any of that, imagine these hybrid giants with superior intellect, superior strength, superior everything, being taught the sciences, the same sciences that we learn today. My God, I believe that these guys within that thousand-year period developed technology that is far beyond what we're using today. In fact, I call that age the empire of the gods because that's what it was. But I also call it the age of hybrids. The days of Noah was the age of hybrids. Wow, you said so much there. What's fascinating is when you say the word, Timothy, reprobate entities, to think that God had not made some of the entities that exist today, in other words, unsanctioned and illegitimate species not made by God, it seems inconceivable. It's hard to wrap a person's head around that. And as you were talking about these antediluvian old world order technologies, example, flying machines, Sanskrit writings called Zamana, whether it's ancient history or ancient Tibetan writings, it's interesting that all these occultic Luciferian, for example, Freemasons take a fascination with transgenic hybrid creatures. I find it interesting that whether it's Albert Pike, the granddaddy of Freemasonry, along with Manly P. Hall and Helena Blavatsky, they all talk about these sort of transmugenic hybrid species. And when you take a look at Madame Blavatsky's translation of ancient Tibetan scripts, there is described these huge winged creatures, winged beings, giants, etc. Isn't that fascinating? It is. It is, and the occult world, and when I say the occult world, of course, I'm referring to all the satanic Luciferian orders, all the secret societies, all of these secret orders. There's a lot in, in the day and age we live in, there's a lot of wannabe secret orders out there. There's a lot of wannabe satanic groups out there that are not really connected to the source. They're not plugged into the source. They're basically, like Elister Crowley once said, they're playing at magic. They're not really in contact with the entities that teach this stuff. And the entities that teach the esoteric secrets are not human. They're not human. And so that's exactly what Aleister Crowley did, by the way, is he found out how to get in contact with these entities, and he did indeed get in contact with them. So yes, the, the occultic world is obsessed with the forbidden knowledge. What is the occultic world obsessed with? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, or in short, the tree of knowledge. They are absolutely obsessed with these creatures, with even reconstituting some of these entities with the technology that we now have through cloning and so forth. But they, these entities 
are gods to them, and they're the ones who hold the chalice of everlasting life. See, for those of us who are in the faith of Jesus Christ, we know that our hope, our eternal hope, is in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ in the gospel, that we look forward to eternity with the Father because we embrace the redemption of of the human race, of those members of the human race who receive the Lord Jesus. Uh, That's our blessed hope, is to be with him for eternity because of what he did for us. But on the other side of that, the quote-unquote blessed hope of the, of the secret societies and of the, of the occult world is to attain everlasting life through knowledge, is apotheosis, is to become themselves gods. They're not looking for forgiveness of sins. They're not looking for redemption through the cross. They categorically reject that notion. See, the occult world is built on pride. That's exactly, obviously, what uh, one of the major factors in the devil descending into the character that he is now is pride. We will ascend, just like the devil said, I will ascend. I will be like God. Well, that's what apotheosis is to the human race. We will ascend. We will become like God. That's transhumanism. That's what transhumanism is. We will conquer death rather than freely receiving the incredible, unimaginable, uncalculable gift of God, the free gift in Jesus Christ and the cross of Christ. They reject that and they look to the tree of knowledge and the giver of knowledge, literally Lucifer. You ask a Satanist, a true Satanist, why do they worship Satan? Well, in reality, they would tell you that they don't really worship Satan. They worship enlightenment. They worship the the, the ideal of of the human race being free from all moral bindings. That's what they'll tell you. Well, exactly what they're describing is born out of Satan, is the influence of the actual entity that they say that they don't worship. So they do worship Lucifer. They do worship Satan. You can't get around it. All the occultic groups ultimately are eating at the tree of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil. The promise that they're clinging to, their blessed hope, is apotheosis. And so they believe that all these entities that went before us, these god creatures, these hybrid gods, they believe that they are the keepers, they are the givers of this apotheosis, that mankind will become like gods. If you want to understand the secret societies and and the occult, take the Bible and turn it upside down. It is the truth of the gospel turned on its head. Jesus is the enemy. Everything that Jesus teaches in the Beatitudes and and in the Gospels and that the disciples teach in the Gospels, all of that is garbage and useless. And everything that Satan teaches, everything from the tree of knowledge, is what's useful in life and profitable for for eternal life. Tim, you just said this phrase, turning everything upside down. It's interesting. Tom Horn and Steve Quell were on my show Monday, and this is a fascinating thing that Tom Horn said. He said, what if the Pope, arm in arm at the UN, were to come on this stage? Oh, and by the way, the aliens are here. We've met them. What's really interesting is he presented a scenario where they could say, oh, you know that God of the Genesis, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob God? Well, forget that. 
you know, this devil that we've been told that's bad all this time, that's not true. He's the good guy. He really wants us to have upgraded technologies. There's also, as Steve said, a Google patent called eternal life. So as you said, it's really the same life in the garden being regurgitated. You shall become like God. That's really Satan's modus operandi, isn't it here? But the topic of these transgenic humanoid robots controlled entirely by human brain, brain machine interface, I mean, that is a ghastly notion when you look at these really advanced genetics, robotics, and nanotechnologies. I mean, the scary part is we're talking about the end of man as we know it, post-humanism. That's really quite frightening, isn't it? It's terribly frightening because the question that people have to ask is, is there a point at which a person can become irredeemable? So in biblical terms, we have to ask the question, what makes us candidates for salvation? And when you study the scriptures, you realize the story that's being unfolded, uh, the importance of being human. We are human beings. Now, we are degraded human beings in terms of Adam was the prototypical human being. Obviously, when God created Adam and Eve, they were the, the top of the ladder. I mean, they were, they were human on a, to a degree that, that, you know, that none of us really are, but we're still human. In other words, we're degrading genetically, and that's a fact. That's a scientific fact. We are all we're not evolving, we're devolving. The human, the human race is devolving. However, we remain human. We're just inferior human beings compared to Adam and the antediluvians who probably were able to use almost all of their brain mass, but, among other things. But the point is that we are human. And the scariest thing about transhumanism is that eventually, because of the trajectory of technology, and, and I believe it's absolutely inevitable. In fact, I believe it's a matter of biblical prophecy. Is inevitably there's going to be born or created a race of a race of human non-humans that are irredeemable, that are unredeemable. And when I say unredeemable, I mean they do not qualify for salvation. And that kind of terminology doesn't register with people. What do you mean qualify for salvation? All we have to do is believe on Jesus. Yes if you're human, because the Bible tells us, and it makes no bones about the fact, that salvation through Christ is for us, the children of Adam, the sons and daughters of Adam. That's why Jesus came to the earth. That's why the Son of God came to the earth. That's why the Father sent his Son, to die for us, specifically the human race. Apart from all the genetic monstrosities that are going to start appearing in the future because of our tampering with the human genome, the most devastating, the most terrifying reality is the fact that some people, human-like people that aren't fully human, are going to damn themselves, are going to do something in the future, I believe, and I believe it has to do with the mark of the beast, by the way, that is going to cause them to no longer qualify for salvation. There won't even be, they're not, they will no longer be candidates, they will no longer qualify for salvation because they will no longer be fully human. There will be no going back. That is, a, that is an absolutely horrifying thought. Among all, among all the other horrors that are going to be happening in the future because of this stuff, 
That, to me, is the worst. And it's the one that I think that the church and Christians need to wrap their brains around really, really fast. And that this message, of the, this message that is fundamental to the gospel, the message that we are human, Jesus died for us. That's why he became like us. The Bible says that Jesus became like us in every way. Every way. That means he became human. He wore Mm -hmm. our flesh. He took on our condition. He had to in order to redeem us, in order to save us. That's what he had to do. And so I think this is something that pastors have to start dealing with. They've got to start getting what transhumanism is, what posthumanism is. And this has got to be something that's got to start coming forth from pulpits, this idea of beware the transhumanist agenda, because it's going to look sexy. They're going to make it look incredibly enticing. I mean, um, I mean, on every level. I, I mean, enhanced human beings uh, apply it to whatever realm of society you want to, um, and it's a very enticing idea. I mean, who doesn't want to live a hundred extra years? Because that's literally the kind of stuff that we're going to be up against here. There's going to be available in the future technologies that are going to allow people to extend their lifespans, even technologies that are going to involve genetic engineering that are going to nullify cancer for those who are willing to undergo the, the treatments. And, and we're talking about life and death. I think that's partly why those who overcome the dragon do not love their lives unto death. In other words, they don't love their lives enough to extend them at whatever cost. You just said the word nullify cancer, but I think what's more frightening is nullifying our redemption. Transhumanism means embracing beast technology, and as Steve Quayle's Xenogenesis subtitle says, turning men into monsters, well, turning men into unredeemable monsters is more frightening because it reminds me of this already rocket-sledding beast system that you just, as you just alluded to the word enticing, you know, you've, Timothy, presented the idea that perhaps the mark of the beast, which will be compulsive for the citizens of this new world empire, or maybe it's a rehash of the old world empire, but it has more to do with maybe bearing a genetic marker in one's genome, bearing a genetic marker of Satan's image. Talk a little bit about that, because I find it's so fascinating, but yet it's so staggeringly I don't even think there's an a English word to encapsulate the absolute horror of nullifying our redemption through Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, think about this. John wrote, over 2,000 years ago, he wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ as he received it on the island of Patmos. And he wrote that, that the beast, that, that we would take the, the beast, the mark of the beast, that the beast and his mark that we would wear the mark of the beast on our foreheads and on, and on our uh, right, I think it's our right hands. Now, what John didn't know, or perhaps he did, but what we know today is that the same term, mark or marker, is used to identify genes. They're called genetic markers. And so um, when you talk about the mark of the beast, All you have to do is insert the word genetic in there, the genetic mark of the beast. And if you insert the word genetic in there, all kinds of stuff starts to fall in place uh, concerning the the end of the age and the things that are happening at the end of the age. 
I believe that unquestionably the mark of the beast is going to have something to do with genetics. Does that mean that people are not going to have a, a mark on their hand and on their forehead? No, I think that's literal too. I wouldn't be surprised at all to find part of the, the system of the beast is to actually have that identifying marker on your forehead and your right hand. After all, when the Lord returns, those of us who are still here are going to have, are going to be marked as well, that we're marked with his name, I believe, on our foreheads um, before he returns. So there's this idea of being marked. And what is a mark that one could receive that is irreversible? Well, in some cases, it could be a genetic mark. A mark on the hand, a chip in the hand, you could dig it out. If you've got a chip in your forehead, if you, were really, uh, if you were really inspired and sorry that you got that mark, you could take a knife and dig it out of your forehead unless it's implanted into your brain uh, or so deep under your skin that you would have to kill yourself. But regardless, a genetic marker, a transformation of the genome is a lot more complex and could very well be irreversible in some cases. And so it could ultimately be definitely irreversible depending on what they do. Now, what, what really sinks all of this together for me is, is the understanding that at the end of the age, there are going to be 10 hybrid kings. Now, I'm going to say this. This is my hypothesis. This is, this is what Tim Alberino posits concerning this because there are some other interpretations, and I respect other people's interpretations. I don't claim to have all the information on this stuff, but this is from my point of view, is that, the, of course, the, the famous statue of Nebuchadnezzar that's found in the book of, of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has the dream, and uh, he sees that great statue. Basically, the statue is divided into portions, five different portions. It's cast in different metals, and each metal represents a different world empire. And that's pretty much agreed upon unanimously uh, by most scholars and, and uh, theologians. But what's not really well understood, and where there's a lot of uh, where there's a lot of difference of opinion, is the feet, the final empire of that statue. And we may be living in the days uh, we may be seeing that empire come together in the very days we live in. The final empire of the statue is very unique because it's not made of one solid metal. It's made of iron mixed with potter's clay. It says miry clay in some versions, but, but um, what it's talking about is potter's clay. So the, you have iron mixed with potter's clay. This is the description of the final empire in, in the context of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, that he, the, the dream, the statue that was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so the ten, obviously the Bible doesn't say ten toes. It says the feet and the toes, but we know that feet have ten toes. And the Bible says that the, the toes represent, uh, in, in, uh, in Daniel, it says, and whereas you saw the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. The iron mixed with clay and the ten toes of the feet, and the fact that there's two feet with five toes each, represents prophetically that this final empire is going to be fragmented. It's going to be divided. It's not going to be under the governorship of one person, not initially. It's going to be fragmented. But there's a deeper meaning. There's a deeper analogy to the iron mixed with clay, and we don't have to guess at it. Because I believe that those ten toes of these feet, that the iron mixed with clay, the, the iron mixed with clay and the feet of the statue, the feet having ten toes, I believe 
that those 10 toes don't represent 10 world regions. That's what I used to believe until I examined it a little bit closer, that those 10 toes, that's the popular view, that those 10 toes represent 10 regions of the earth. I've since changed my opinion, and I believe that those 10 toes represent 10 kings. And the analogy of the iron mixed with clay goes on in the book of Daniel. And it says, and whereas you saw iron mixed with miry clay, or potter's clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave to one another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And many Bible prophecy researchers stop there, and they say, well, who, well the they, who are the they? Well, in truth, the next sentence tells us who they are. It says, and in the days of these kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. So it's very possible that the they, and they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, has a direct connection to the next sentence, these kings, and in the days of these kings. What kings? Daniel is not talking about all of the kings of the different empires, of the other four empires in the statue, because in the days of these kings... Jesus comes back. So it's these kings is referring to, in my opinion, the ten kings represented by the ten toes and, of course, also prophesied in the, the ten horns on the seven heads of the dragon and of the beast in the book of Revelations. And those ten horns of the dragon and of the beast, we're told what those represent in the book of Revelations. We're told in Revelations 17.12, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom of, as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So here we have ten kings. In the book of Daniel and in the book of Revelations, we have ten kings. Now this is interesting. Ten kings are arising, and the purpose of these ten kings is to hand over the reins of the earth total dominion of the earth, which is divided amongst these ten kings, they hand it over, and it is consolidated in one man. And that is, of course, the beast, the Antichrist. And furthermore, these ten kings who hand over their authority to this one man are, in my opinion, not fully human. I believe that these ten kings are hybrids of some kind, and that has to do with the analogy of the iron mixed with kick clay in the feet and in the toes. And I take it a step further, and I say that I believe that in the end of the age, um, many of the individuals, participants in this empire are not going to be human either, not fully human. It's going to be a resurrection of the golden age, a resurrection of the hybrid age, as in the days of Noah. And it's interesting to note, too, that these ten kings and by the way, the book of Revelation says that God, not Satan, God entices these ten kings to give their authority over to the beast. It's interesting. God is in complete control of this whole thing. God entices those kings to hand over their authority to the beast. So the beast gets all of the earthly authority of these ten kings. They give him their dominion. They give it over to him. But, that, but the dominion of the beast doesn't stop there. Because not only do the ten kings give him their authority, but also the dragon, 
the dragon gives him his authority. Now, isn't that interesting? We have ten kings turning over, let's just call it the keys of the planet, the keys of the dominion of earth to the Antichrist. But then you also have the dragon, Lucifer, handing over his authority to the beast. In fact, the Bible says that the people worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. So what that represents is that you have Lucifer, the dominion of Lucifer, and the authority of Lucifer, which is a different realm of authority than the Ten Kings, is being handed to the Antichrist. I mean, we don't realize how much authority is being invested in this one guy. It's incredible. And, and then, of course, then, of course, we have the terrifying line in the Bible that he makes war with the church, with the followers of the Lamb. So he makes war with the followers of the Lamb with all the authority of the planet and of Satan. And it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible when you start to put the pieces together, the implications. Well, the implications is quite frightening to sort of recap what you're saying is that potentially Nebuchadnezzar's dream could very well have been speaking of hybrids. And to take that one step further, these kings that would rule the earth at the end of the age would be these transgenetic hybrids with demonic dominion. Again, as you said, a different yes. realm of authority. So I think I want to really go to that scripture, Luke ten nineteen. Behold, I give you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I think that's going to be very crucial going into what is about to be unleashed here. I think it's very imperative that people understand authority at this time because let's face it you talked about the pulpit here tim it sickens me that we're not shouting from the rooftops i mean to think that there's christians out there that think it's a good idea to upgrade our brain you know this transhumanism movement includes these christian groups that embrace this arrogant notion that science and technology can improve the human mental and physical characteristics and capacities and they view sickness aging and death as you know those are just unnecessary hindrances Tim and we have the responsibility to overcome them because our bodies are just these frail and unpredictable problems for these engineers to solve I mean it implies that with the right tools we can fix ourselves I mean this isn't a sci-fi fiction this is an actual agenda that is taking place before our eyes and it's so arrogant to think that humans are just too fat, too slow, too dumb. Here, you just step back, God, and we'll show you how it's done here. <laughs> yes, it's extremely arrogant. It's really the sentiment of their father, the devil. What is more important right now to be preaching than to be bringing people back to the core elements, the core story of the gospel in light of the actual events that are occurring on the earth. And so what I mean is to understand the gospel, to understand what it means to be human. See, believers have to ask that question. We need to ask that question. We need to be asking the same question that the transhumanists are asking. What does it mean to be human? Our answer is going to be very different, vastly different from theirs. We need to be preparing people to understand the Bible from, from Genesis to Revelations, the fact 
that a schism has been caused between man and God, his creator, and that because of sin, we were separated from God, and now we have the condition of sin and death, this human condition. And we need to understand what our human condition really is and really understand what the rectification of our human condition is, which is Jesus Christ. He is the rectification of our condition, but not yet. We are being changed on the inside. We're being conformed on the inside. But yet every believer listening to the sound of my voice, no matter how strong of a believer you are, no matter how much you read your Bible, you're going to die. So what that means is that that sin is still at work in your body. And of course, that's what the Bible tells us. That's what the apostles tell us, especially Paul. So the death of Jesus that's, he paid for our sins, but his resurrection, it's the resurrection of Christ. It's dying in Christ, and that's when we resurrect after dying in Christ, after running our race, we reach the end of our lives, we die in the faith, and then we live for eternity with Jesus. Well, transhumanism is the, is the complete opposite of that. The race for transhuman, in transhumanism is to reject Christ and not die. That's what it is. We reject Christ and also somehow escape death. And that's why it's so important for believers to understand who we are, what the gospel means to us, and what the human condition means to us as opposed to everybody else. We all suffer from it, but the end result of the human condition for us is, oh, death, where is your sting? That's our reply, not we don't want to die. No, our reply is, oh, death, where is your sting? To die, to live as Christ, to die is gain. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And we have to understand our condition, and we have to understand the gospel, and we have to understand how to repudiate and how to train people to stay away from transhumanism. To, to reject it on every level and to cling to the gospel. The point that really brings us all together is, don't you find it interesting that no time in history has Christianity ever become so persecuted? Jesus Christ is now offensive. It's actually against the law in some areas. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Would we see the day when saying Jesus Christ could get you locked up or beheaded? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. Uh, yes, we're obviously in those days, and it's coming to America real fast. But what's really incredible is that when you look at the, the prophetic narrative in the Bible, not only is Jesus Christ going to get you locked up, but the whole earth, guided by the kings of the earth, probably these hybrid kings and obviously the Antichrist, are going to attempt to make war with God and specifically with his son Jesus. They're, they're not only going to hate him and kill, persecute those who serve him, they are going to try to attempt to actually make war with him, to actually fight him with weapons of war. That's how bad it's going to get on this planet. I think it's so interesting that these, as I call it, Hollywood or Hollywood, maybe it's a better name, these science fictions, <laughs> they have such dehumanizing transhuman overtones and these technologies that are available because whether it's World War Z or G.I. Joe, Rise of the Cobra or Avatar or Minority Report, Gattaca, Lysium, and even Transcendence, it's always this intense cross-pollination between the biotech, the nanotech, the robotic, and always this very anti-humanist eugenics theme. 
but it's almost like the the same eugenicists that have created the biotech which envisioned the genetic code and the double helix in the 1860s it's always the same predatory group that's infested civilization since its beginnings isn't it yes and um they're using the you know what what better medium exists to to prepare people to receive to accept what's coming what better medium is there than television and movies because most people most human beings are not researchers by nature they're not going to go and research things out and and they're not going to go and find out for themselves what's actually happening but but almost all of us are moviegoers and television watchers and so they don't have to tell us hey this is actually going to happen this is actually true they just have to put it in front of our face so many times that when it actually happens we just kind of shrug our shoulders really we're being conditioned to receive without resistance this idea of transhumanism uh it's a very dangerous message and it has eternal implications and we're being conditioned we're being conditioned with all of these marvel comics movies with all of these hybrid creatures and hybridization and cloning and uploading your consciousness to computers and all this it's being glorified it's being portrayed as something wonderful it's something transcendent and something we all ought to aspire to and it's and it's also being portrayed as the inevitable future and on that and in that regard it's 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 absolutely true it is it is the inevitable future on this planet for the human race well and as steve talked about this eternal life patent isn't that a great word for google to come up with a patent called eternal life where you can just again upload your complete system into these avatars i mean the most troubling proposal of that strategic social initiatives conference in new york city back in 2013 was what they dubbed as the avatar project i mean they said hey by 2015 we're going to be able to upload you essentially into these avatars and you know even more central to our lives now timothy is these softwares like siri and google and now these other highly advanced technologies that are trying to use technology to understand us there's a movie now where this guy falls in love with a computer we're moving more and more towards this intimate interface like the interface we have with each other with computers and there's a really interesting article i don't know if you saw this tim paul watson did it on infowars back in december and he talked about this term sexitus young men ducking out of society and moving in towards this world of video games cyber sex and pornography and they want nothing to do with women and it's really quite disturbing and it's a trend in our young men it's extremely disturbing you know there's uh something that um probably infuriates me more than anything else i have four boys but for the but for my boys um uh, my greatest frustration in the society in which they live and in which they're going to live is the is the loss of masculinity yeah. is the general is the gender neutral stuff that they're going to be faced with in the future it's already getting crazy i mean with the gender gender neutral bathrooms and stuff but we're going to a level that people aren't even perceiving yet they're not even perceiving that it's on the horizon and everybody needs to familiarize themselves with a few terms androgynous the term androgynous means having both masculine and feminine characteristics and the reason why people need to familiarize themselves with that term I'll say it again androgynous 
is because that word has been used and employed by the occult world for centuries. Part of the goal of the occult is to create an androgynous society. Not many people know this, but that's part of their goal. They believe that the highest form of humanity, the highest expression of humanity is hermaphroditic. For those who don't know, the term hermaphrodite refers to a human being that has both female and male sex organs. That's the highest expression of humanity to the occult world is to be androgynous and hermaphrodite. Now, it's not by chance that global society is moving towards an androgynous future. I've got one name for you, Justin Bieber. I mean, <laughs> uh, gone are the days of Elvis Presley and, you know, Terry John Wayne. Exactly. Bush. John Wayne and, and the, the, the men that were idolized in, in the media were the men that epitomized masculinity, yeah. were the men that were strong, that were seen as protectors and, and heroes. Those days are long gone. Now the men that are worshipped in, 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 the, in the form of, of humanity that is most glorified is this androgynous form of humanity where men are walking around and they've got lipstick on and makeup albeit maybe not as much as women, but it's there, it's present. They're wearing gender-neutral clothes. We're losing the sense of masculinity. And again, that frightens me for the world that my, that my four boys are going to grow up in. My oldest is nine. And it's really terrifying, and it's disgusting. There's also another term people need to get familiar with, because here comes the trendy term, non-binary. That's the term that's coming out. And non-binary basically is a term for people whose gender identities do not fit in, into the gender binary. In other words, they don't fit into the norm. And these are people right now who don't consider themselves to be men or women. They're neutral. Pictures on bathroom doors of a little universal man and a little universal woman. Forget those. I mean, we are moving into a sci-fi really with this total gender neutral. Isn't that just absolutely hard to wrap your head around. There's so much more to talk about. I will have you come back on a, a second part of this series because, again, that's a whole other show is what's happening with our, our young men and women. So thank you so much for coming on to the program today, Tim. Please do also tell people where they can find your stuff. channel is called Genesis 6 Giants, associated with Steve Quayle, and people can find me working with Steve. I'm on Steve's website. People can click the link to the Elberino Analysis there. And by the way, we've got a new conversation out. Steve and I have got a project in the works. People can go check that out on his website. It says Gen 6 Productions. So both of those links are located there at stevequayle.com. Thank you so much for coming on the program today, Tim. Hope you come and join us soon. Well, thank you for having me, Sheila. The Sheila Zielinski Show is sponsored by SteveQuayle.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting SteveQuayle.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed.